John Wisdom used to tell a story. This story was a polemic against Christianity about two guys who were walking past a garden and obviously had fallen into disuse. It was choked with weeds. So the one guy says, uh, but they had seen some healthy plants in there. So the one guy says, there must be a gardener who's returned to this garden. He's taking care of these, the healthy plants. And the other guy said, no, I think they just sprung up by themselves. So they decided to test it, and they camped out, and they kept watch for about a week, never saw anybody. So the first guy says, well, there's still a gardener. He's just an invisible gardener. And the other guy said, there's no invisible gardener. And so they decided to put an electric fence around the garden. And so the electric fence, and they watched it for another week. Nothing triggered the fence. And so the first guy says, well, he's not only invisible, he's incorporeal. He has no body. And the second guy, the skeptic, says, well, wait a minute. He's invisible. He's incorporeal. What's the difference between that and no gardener at all? So you see what he's doing, this attack. He's saying, you, you Christians, you worship an invisible God. Well, you know, what's, the, what's the difference between that and no God at all? So not a bad argument, not a bad argument. I think there's a pretty effective rebuttal to that, though. And some of you may be already thinking about it. But we'll get to that in a little while. I'm going to come back, circle back to that at communion. But today we are talking about our invisible God. So if you're new to us, we're in a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Second message today out of ten. Last week we were talking about God says, I'm your God, you shall have no other gods beside me. And we mentioned that beneath each one of these commandments, there's a doctrine, there's an eternal truth. And the one about I'm your God, have no other gods besides me is the sovereignty of God. He is our sovereign, he's our king, he's our master, he's our ruler, he's the boss, he's in charge. He's the papa. So you remember that. That was the first sermon. Now today, we're going to go to the second commandment, which is God says you're not to make any images of me. Have no carved image. And likewise, there's a doctrinal truth underneath this commandment. And that is the transcendence of God. God's transcendence. We don't, we don't talk about this attribute of God or this characteristic of God very much. At least I don't. But it's a good one to try to wrap our arms around. And we're going to explore God's transcendence today with five questions. First question is, what is it? When we say God is transcendent, what do we mean by that? What is God's transcendence? Let's get the, the commandment before us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now, we, some of us may have memorized the King James Version here. It says, don't make a graven image. Right? The word graven simply Old English for carved. Not supposed to have a carved image of God. And we say that the reason for this is the transcendence of God. What we mean by that is God is different from us. God's different from everything. To be transcendent is to be above Above, so he is above and separate from the restrictions of the material created universe. He is above that. He transcends that. God, and really God alone, God is transcendent, pure spirit. He is pure spirit, which means that he is invisible. He is uncreated. We call this, or the theologians call it the aseity of God. He is self-existent. We all depend upon God for our existence. We were brought into existence by the Creator God. But only God is self-existent, uncreated spirit. That makes him totally different. Isaiah the prophet writes, Isaiah 40:18. To whom then will you liken God? 
Or what likeness will you compare with him? This question is asked 16 different times in the Old Testament, and the answer is always the same, nothing. There is nothing to which we can compare God or to whom we can compare God. He's not like anything. Paul says a very similar sentiment in his sermon recorded in Acts 17, 29. We ought not to think that the divine nature, the nature of God, his essence, is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Now, from time to time in the Old Testament, God would make his presence known. God would appear in various forms, sometimes as an object, sometimes as a human being, sometimes as an animal. All right, so, for instance, God appeared to Moses. Remember how God appeared to Moses? Burning bush, the bush that burned but was not consumed. God appeared to Gideon as a person. God, the Holy Spirit, descended upon Jesus at his baptism as a what? As a dove, like a, like a bird. But these are what theologians call theophanies, physical manifestations of God, always temporary, never communicating the essence of God or the divine nature of God, which is unseeable. In 1995, Disney came out with an animated movie called Pocahontas. Perhaps the most historically inaccurate movie of all Disney movies, which is saying a lot. Nevertheless, it won an Academy Award for Best Original Song. Anybody remember what that song was? Trivia here, the song, Academy Award, Best Original Song, Pocahontas. Colors of the Wind. Nailed it, Nicole. Colors of the Wind. Let me sing it for you now. But I, I, let me show you a handful of these lyrics here. I want to illustrate a point. The rains, the rainstorm and the river are my brothers. The heron and the otter are my friends. We are all connected to each other in a circle and a hoop that never ends. The great hula hoop of life never ends. All right. I think, I think the lyrics miss on, on some levels, but they hit on this level. This much is true. We are connected to the rainstorm and the river and the heron and the otter and the human beings. We all have something in common. We are all created. We are creatures of the Creator God. And that's true. The rainstorms, true of the trees, true of the bugs and the animals. Everything's created except for one thing, except for one being, and that is God. He alone is different and separate from everything. And that's part of what we mean when we say God is transcendent, pure, uncreated spirit. No constraints in the material universe, unlike us. Second question, what is forbidden by God's transcendence? What's forbidden by this particular commandment? All right, obviously, to make any kind of statue or an image that the intention is to represent the divine nature and essence of God. So Moses led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. God brought the ten plagues. God parted the Red Sea. They go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. The people get restless. And so down at the foot of the mountain, Aaron, Moses' brother, collects a lot of gold jewelry, melts it down, and he fashions uh, an image of a what? A calf, the golden calf. And then he sets it before the nation of Israel. And here's what he says, Exodus 32, 4. 
This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So Aaron is pointing to this cow and saying, that's your God. That's the God who just brought the ten plagues and part of the, the Red Sea. And in this commandment, when Moses comes down, the second commandment, God is basically saying, stop that. Do not do that. Don't even attempt to make something that's supposed to represent me. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we don't have a cow up here today or a calf that we are supposed to worship. Think of how we might have to rewrite some of our lyrics. Like a song we sang today, we go like this. Show me the one thing you can't do. Show me the mountain he can't move. Pretty bad, right? Pretty bad. Thank you, because it gets no better than that today. So Moses reminds them. Now, when Moses gets the people to the edge of, the, of Canaan and they're about to embark on their military campaign to conquer the promised land, Moses reminds them of this and the reasoning behind this. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, and verses 15 through 18, I, I don't think we have a slide of this, but listen, the Lord, Moses says to the Israelites, the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. This was at, at the mountain when God actually spoke to the nation of Israel. There's smoke and there's fire. The Lord spoke to you. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on that day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves. They never saw him. They only heard him. He says, so don't try to make an image. There's a story about a third grade teacher. She told her class, I want you to draw a picture right now. Just draw a picture of anything. And little Johnny got a very serious look on his face, and he goes to work, and as she's walking up and down by the chair, she looks over his shoulder, Johnny, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, how are you going to do that? Nobody knows what God looks like. And Johnny says, they will when I'm done. So little Johnny was mistaken, but the, the, t the teacher was mistaken as well when she says, nobody knows what God looks like as if God looks like something, if we only knew what it was. There is not a visible something there to see that God looks like. 1 Timothy 6.16, Paul writes, God who dwells in unapproachable light, God whom no man has seen or can see. All right, so we're just not supposed to attempt to do that. Now here's the third question. How do graven images conflict with God's transcendence? What's the big deal? What's the problem with making an image? Let me just suggest two things from my study. Number one, by their very nature, an image, an image of God dishonors God. J.I. Packer, theologian, in his book Knowing God, writes this, Images dishonor God, for they obscure His glory. They inevitably conceal most, if not all, of the truth about the personal nature, the personal nature and character of the divine being whom they represent. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's saying, which temple? Temple in Jerusalem, temple in Mount Gerizim should we worship at? And remember, Jesus said, you must worship God. Temple, Jews have it right, actually, but she, he said, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. And when he said in spirit, he's referring to the fact that God is a spirit and therefore a person. 
And so what's, what's important is that we are personally engaging with God the person in our worship. Well, statues and images obscure that. And the Bible, the Bible mocks the pagans and their idols for that very reason. In Psalm 115, for instance, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths but can't speak. They have eyes but can't see. Ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. Hands but cannot feel. And feet but cannot walk. They can't make a sound with their throat. They can't even bite their tongue. These carved deities. Uh, one commentator said that when Aaron made that calf, and, and again later on when Israel split into two nations, and you got Jeroboam, and he takes these nations over here, he made two calves as well. There's, there's one commentator who said when they did that, that was their attempt to put Yahweh, the God of the Bible, on a leash, on a leash and walk him around, control him. Theologian Jack Cottrell writes, if we make an image of God, either we'll exalt the image to the level of God and worship it as Hindus do cows and monkeys, or we'll lower God to the level of the image and thus expose ourselves to the danger of unbelief. Because an image can only degrade God in our minds. How could we help losing confidence in a deity made finite by a mortal's mind and hands? I was reading where one historian wrote, Cyrus Gordon. He suggested this very aspect of the nation of Israel, that they would not, in general, make an image of God, that their God was invisible, helped them to survive as a nation when the other nations that surrounded them became extinct. Or listen to what he writes. It's worth noting that defeated nations, nations on seeing their idols dragged off or smashed, tended to become demoralized and lose their identity. Assyria, Babylonia, the Seleucids in Rome could not destroy the Jewish religion partly because God and his people's allegiance to him were incorporeal and therefore indestructible. The second commandment thus paved the way for the historic survival of Yahwehism. Now, a second reason that an image of any, uh, making an image conflicts with God's transcendence is because God has chosen his own image. Now, what image might that be? Jesus. God has chosen his own image. Jesus Christ, the teaching of the New Testament is consistent on this. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. John 14.9, he who has seen me, this is Jesus speaking, has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.13, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. So if we want to picture something in our minds when we're praying to God or thinking about God, why not Jesus? That's the image that he has chosen. And some of them would say, well, we don't really know what Jesus looked like. Of course we do. Haven't you seen the chosen on TV? What Jesus looked like. But it's not so much what Jesus looked like. That's his human nature. It's that when we read the portraits of Jesus in the Gospels, we're looking at his personality, we're looking at his character that comes through. 
That's what we're focusing on. That's how we connect with him. All right, a fourth question. What is not forbidden by this commandment? What is not forbidden by God's transcendence? A lot of, there, there are people who think there are things that they're not allowed to do, which maybe they are. Number one, it's okay to create images and pictures and art forms of God's creatures and creations as creatures, as creations. Not, not as representations of God, but just to draw a picture of a bird or to make a statue uh, you know, of a tree or a picture of a landscape, a painting, or even a, a film or a movie. This is, in the, this is in the Bible. It was, it was actually God commanded this. For instance, the decorations in the temple in the Old Testament. There was this huge basin, and it rested on the back of 12 uh, bulls all right, that were carved and made, three on each side. God commanded that as part of the decor in the temples. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, in the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, what was perched on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two, two carved what? Cherubim. And these are angelic beings. It's not even wrong to create images of beings in the heavens. That, as creatures, not as representations of God's. We don't think that's what's being forbidden. Now, here's another thing. This one is uh, disputed. But from what I've read, from what I've understand, so I'll just say this is my opinion, artwork that depicts the human Jesus is not forbidden. Pictures of Jesus, uh, a film that represents Jesus, the passion of the Christ, it's a movie about Jesus. I just mentioned The Chosen, right, that series about Jesus. They are depicting, again, the human side of Jesus. Hundreds and thousands of people saw him. He's still visible in heaven at the right hand of God to the angelic beings and supposedly to the souls who've died and are with God in the present heaven now. Now, we're probably all going to see that aspect of Jesus. That's, that's separate from his divine nature. Now, not everybody agrees with that. Uh, that's a position that I, my go-to theologian is Jack Cottrell, J.I. Packer, who wrote that book, Knowing God. He believes the opposite. No pictures of Jesus, no movies about Jesus, no television shows, you know, or, or so on and so forth. So I just say, I would just tell you that's disputed, but that's my best understanding. Speaking of The Chosen, how many people here have seen that television series, The Chosen? Quite a, quite a few. It's wildly popular. It's a multi-season series about Jesus and his followers. And again, this is in that category. Does that violate? I don't think so. I don't think that violates this uh, commandment. But a word of caution I think it's good TV. It's better than 99.9% .9 of what one might watch on television. I've watched the first series, and it's very well written, very, very good. We just want to make sure that we don't let a series like that take the place of or be a substitute for actually reading the gospel, reading the Bible. I could see where someone might say, I don't like to read the Bible. I'm not much of a reader. I'm just going to watch The Chosen, and then I'll know what Jesus is all about and what the, you know, the whole Christian thing is all about. That's kind of backwards. And I'll give you an example. The first episode of the very first season of The Chosen is all about Mary Magdalene. She's a biblical character. She's written about in the Gospel of Luke. It's a 50-minute episode surrounding the backstory of Mary Magdalene and how she encountered Jesus and he delivered her from her demon possession. It's very moving, very effective. Uh, however, now here's the biblical data 
on Mary Magdalene. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. One verse, ten words. So if you've got a 50-minute episode, then you know there's some artistic and dramatic license being taken. I have no problem with that as long as we understand that. So we want our main source. we got 50 minutes to watch The Chosen. We have enough time to read the Bible. We have enough time to read the whole Bible through in a year just by reading a few minutes every day. We want to make sure our main source material is coming from the Word of God and what we watch on TV is supplemental. Same thing for a sermon, frankly. Well, what we hear in 20, 22 minutes here today should be supplemental to our own reading and absorbing of the Word of God. Now that takes me to my fifth and final question. What is required by God's transcendence? On the negative side, we're not going to make a carved image. What about on the positive side? On the positive side, we want to make sure that we are worshiping God, we're connecting with God through His Word. Through His Word. Now listen again to Moses in Deuteronomy 4. He says to the Israelites, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while flames from the mountain shot into the sky the mountain was shrouded in black clouds and deep darkness, and the Lord spoke to you from the heart of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but did not see his form. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to keep. We connect with God, this incorporeal, transcendent, uncreated spirit, through his word. He said, you heard the voice. Here's the primary difference between our God, the God of the real God of the Bible and other gods and idols, is that he is a living God, the living God, and he has spoken. He has communicated with us. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to us today? Yes, he is, through the written word of God, what we call the Bible. Is the Spirit of Christ communicating to us today? Yeah, through the Bible. Is God the Father communicating to us? Yes, through His written Word, the Bible. Now, I've got the One Year Bible app on my phone, so I listen to the Bible in the mornings on my earbuds, which are Bluetooth. There's no wire, but they're connected by Bluetooth to the phone. So I'll listen to that in the morning, and I'll listen to some Christian songs. Sometimes, though, I'll set my phone down somewhere. I may, I may wander away. But I never lose that phone because when I get a certain distance away, you know what happens? You lose the signal. I can't hear, those, I can't hear the words anymore. I've got to get back in range. Oh, yeah, I forgot my phone. Go back and get the phone. And there's a similar connection. There's a similar, similar dynamic between us, our God, and his word. The farther away we get from God, our source, the less we hear his words and are interested in his words. The closer we draw to God, the louder his voice becomes and the more engaged we are in his word. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We want to make sure that we are engaging with God with his word. Helen Keller, deaf and blind made the statement. She said, blindness separates us from things, but deafness separates us from people. And if we close our ears, so to speak, to the words of God, we are going to be separated from God. 
God wants us to know that He exists. He lives. He loves us. He wants us to know we can depend upon Him and we can trust Him. But we know that by His communicating with us through His written Word. We are a people of the book, the Bible. We call Bible things by Bible names. We do Bible things in Bible ways. The Word of God, the written Word of God, is our only rule of faith and practice. I think this is what is required of us by the transcendence of God. I'm going to close in prayer with this message. This prayer comes from the prodigal prayer guide. There's a 930 study. I don't think they're having it today. But there's a 930 study for those who are praying for their prodigals. In that book, there is a prayer that's based upon every one of the Ten Commandments. And I want to pray this prayer today that's based upon the second commandment, not for prodigals, but for all of us. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Father, we are all guilty of making the things of this world into idols. Anything we treasure more than you is an idol. We have elevated the things of this world to the level of idolatry, sometimes without being aware of it and that it is sin. We try to remake you into an image that we have created. And that's acceptable in our own eyes. We add to and take away from your word to satisfy our own ideas of justice, mercy, and love. And we have forgotten that in the judgment of sin, you are merciful through Jesus Christ. Wake us up, Lord, and remind us that you are jealous for our love and devotion. Remind us that the consequences for sin are significant and reverberate down through the generations. Open our eyes to see the spiritual warfare around us and that the idols we worship are from the pits of hell. We need to see evil for what it truly is. And we need to see our sin and the sin of those around us. May the facades that we put up drop so that we may see the illusion of our own righteousness and admit our sin. Knock down the idols of our lives so that our hearts may be broken and sorrowful to the point of repentance, return, forgiveness, and justification. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have the Lord's Supper at this time, the communion, and the communion helps to remind us that God came near. Remember that little polemic about the gardeners? Uh, uh, The gardener, rather, the invisible gardener, the incorporeal gardener. What's the difference between that and no gardener at all? What we just talked about is the answer. In Jesus, the gardener became visible and had a corporeal body And he visited the garden, which is the earth. And people saw him in his three and a half year ministry. Our, this part of our service, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're remembering that our transcendent God has drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon this bread, reminding us Jesus had a body. And we we thank you for this cup of juice that reminds us that Jesus shed his blood on the cross, voluntarily died on our behalf, taking our full punishment for our sin upon him so that we could live with the hope of resurrection and reunion with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.